Well, good morning. Oh, y'all are not lively at all. Uh, good morning. Thank you. I need your energy today. Uh, if you're a guest with us, my name is Mitchell Cruitt. I'm one of the pastors, and uh, as you just heard Ron pray, and if you've been with us for a while, you will have noticed I wasn't at my post this morning because what started out early in the week is just allergies turned into a sinus infection, which turned into a double ear infection, which led to my daughters passing along pink eye and both eyes to me. Uh, so I figured most people would want space. So I uh, was trying to give you space. Uh, and I also say that uh, as a way to say, please bear with me in today's message. I'm 90% confident it's coherent, uh, but given the week, we'll see. Uh, please let me know uh, uh, what, whether it made sense as we finish today. Uh, but as we begin to consider our passage this morning, I wonder by a show of hands, uh, how many of us have ever wondered, where is God when disaster strikes? Fair number of us. Now, sometimes the disaster we wonder about is more personal in nature. God, what are you doing when I'm sick again? What are you doing when I experience another migraine? God, where are you when a loved one passes away? But sometimes the disaster we wonder about is more corporate in nature. God, what are you doing as this hurricane develops off the Gulf? God, where were you as dozens of Christians were killed in Nigeria last month? God, where are you in these moments of disaster? And for many of us, our natural instinct in these painful times is to assume God must not be present and God must not be doing something. Yet today, as we resume our sermon series in Acts that we've called the Acts of the Risen Christ, because it's Jesus working through his people still today, we get a glimpse of what God is doing when disaster strikes, especially when that disaster is connected especially to rejecting God or his people. And so if you've not been with us for that series, or it's been long enough since we've looked at the book of Acts, here's just a brief review of where we've been. In Acts chapter 1, we picked up where the Gospels left off. And Jesus told his disciples that they would be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And after entrusting them with that, he ascended to the right hand of the Father. And then in Acts chapter 2, Jesus sends his Holy Spirit to empower his disciples to do just that. And then in Acts chapter 3, through the beginning of chapter 6, we began to see how the early church was navigating various threats to the unity and mission of the church, both internal threats and external threats. And then in the last time we were in Acts, we saw that the church appointed seven men to ensure that the widows were not neglected within the church of Jerusalem. And so today's passage then, Acts chapter 6, verse 8 through chapter 8, verse 3, focuses then on the ongoing ministry of one of these men, named Stephen. Now, it's important for us to realize that at this point in the church's history, we're about three to five years in from when Jesus ascended to the right hand of the Father. So three to five years in ministry, and we're still in Jerusalem, mostly dealing with Christians or Jews who had converted to Christianity, despite Jesus having early on said, you'll be my witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but in Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. It seems like there's been very little movement to actually go about doing that. That's where we pick up today. 
And given the length of our passage today, uh, this is what we're going to do. First, I'm going to summarize the story. Uh, We're not going to be reading a lot of this passage together, as that would take too much time. So I'd encourage you, either this afternoon or evening or sometime throughout this week, to go ahead and read this passage for yourself. But instead, I'll simply be summarizing the major points uh, of this passage so that we can discern its message then together. Then second, uh, we'll be considering the big idea of this passage and where we get that from those specific points in the story. And then finally, we'll ask, what difference does this message make as we go about our lives as representatives of Jesus? So again, we'll consider the story and the big idea, and then what difference this makes for our lives. But before we do that, let's ask God uh, for his help today, uh, both for all of us to listen and for me to be able to preach. Heavenly Father, we thank you that you have revealed yourself in your word. Thank you that in it we can see who you are and what you're doing. And we can see how we ought to live in response. We ask today that as we consider your word, you would reveal your sovereignty, your goodness, and your love for your people. Lord, we ask that you would help us to see Jesus more clearly and come to love him more deeply. We know that your word is powerful to transform hearts, and so we ask that you would do just that. And Lord, this week, a week where I especially feel my weakness, that we ask that your strength, your power would be made perfect through my weakness. The sermon that's heard today would be better than the one that was prepared. That you would help me to preach your word clearly, faithfully, and passionately so that Jesus would be exalted today. We ask all this in the precious name of Jesus. Amen. Well, if you've not turned there, I invite you to open your Bible to Acts chapter 6, verse 8. Uh, Though we won't be going uh, verse by verse through it in terms of reading it, I will be trying to point out along the way uh, where different points are coming from, so it'll be helpful for you to have it. Uh, Unfortunately, we could not fit the whole passage on your weekly word and prayer, and so one week only, if you don't have a paper Bible with you, I will encourage you to go to our website on your smartphone right now, northwoodcc.org and go to the U version tab on our website and that'll allow you to follow along with the notes as well as we have all of the passage uh, available for you to follow along there and so once you found Acts chapter 6 verse 8 uh, take a moment to quietly prepare your own heart to receive God's word ask him to help you listen to surrender distractions and burdens and to hear what he's prepared for you If you're ready to receive God's word, say, I'm ready. ready. Wonderful. Well, consider the story with me, beginning in chapter 6, verse 8. In these first several verses, we first see that Stephen is falsely accused of speaking against the temple and the law. Now, as I said earlier, Stephen was one of the seven who had been appointed to care for the widows in the church of Jerusalem. But that was not all he did. Verse 8 tells us that he was full of grace and power, and he was doing great wonders and signs among the people. He's the first person besides the apostles to be said to do this. And yet, members of the synagogue, the Jewish establishment, began arguing with Stephen about what he was preaching. But they could not withstand the wisdom 
and the spirit with which he was speaking. This is a fulfillment, again, of what Jesus had earlier prophesied when he was walking on the earth with his disciples. In Mark chapter 13, he said, Do not be anxious beforehand what you are to say, but say whatever is given to you in that hour, for it is not you who speak, but the Holy Spirit. This isn't to say that Stephen wasn't educated or that Stephen wasn't prepared to engage in this conversation. We'll see in a minute that Stephen actually knew the scriptures very well as he recounts Israel's history. But it is to say that, as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit will speak through us, often using the preparation we've already done, so that we have no reason to be anxious in moments like these. The Holy Spirit will use what we know, And what we don't know in order to make us effective in moments when we can point people to Jesus. But since these men disputing with him could not defeat the spirit-empowered Stephen through reason or persuasion, they resort to false accusations. Verse 11 says that they secretly instigate men. What had been done to Jesus was now being done to Stephen. And specifically, these men who've been instigated say that they've heard Stephen speak blasphemous words against Moses and God. And now that the false allegations have been let out, it stirs up the people, the scribes, the elders, all the leaders of the Jews, so that they can put Stephen on trial. And during this trial, they once again raise up false witnesses to say more specifically that Stephen never ceases to speak against this holy place, meaning the temple and the law. So they're falsely accusing him for speaking against the temple and the law. And they base these accusations on hearing him say that Jesus will destroy this place and in three days raise it up. They base this upon him saying that they will change the customs of Moses. Now, although I've called these things false accusations and Luke has called them false witnesses, we should recognize that the best lies actually have a kernel of truth. And so what was it that these people heard that would allow them to credibly charge Stephen with these things? Well, the first thing we need to remember is that at its core, a temple was the place where God dwelled with his people, where he revealed himself to them. And so it seems that Stephen was repeating something that Jesus had earlier said, that I will destroy this temple and in three days raise it up. Not at all meaning the physical temple, but himself. And in Jesus' day, that was misunderstood. But what Jesus was getting at is he is the glory and the presence of God among us. (coughs) And so when Jesus died and then rose from the dead three days later, Jesus is saying the temple was himself. And it was destroyed. And then it was raised up three days later. And further, Stephen was likely teaching, as Jesus has taught, that Jesus was the fulfillment of all the law. And since he had been sacrificed on the cross for our sin, the people no longer needed to keep the law as the basis of their good standing before God. They no longer needed to keep the law as a way to earn God's love and acceptance. This is what Jesus had done for us. In other words, Stephen was likely not blaspheming or speaking against the temple or the law, but rather showing how both the temple and the law find their truest fulfillment in Jesus. And yet, this sounded like blasphemy to some. But for a moment, I want us to pause here and just consider. If you are not a Christian this morning, you have never turned from your sin and trusted in Jesus, this message that Stephen was proclaiming 
It's the same message we want you to hear today. Because Jesus lived a perfect life, willingly sacrificed himself on the cross, and then rose three days later, you now can have access to God's presence. We don't have to keep the law or be good enough or do anything to earn God's love or acceptance. There's nothing we need to do in order to merit earning and entering into God's presence. This is what Jesus earned for us. And so now you can have God's presence, God's blessing, God's love, God's acceptance and God's approval instead of God's judgment and God's wrath. Not because of what you've done, because there's nothing you could ever do that would be enough, but because of what Jesus has done for you. And this gift can be yours if you would simply turn from your sin and trust Christ. If this is something you'd want to know more about, please uh, come talk to Rory after the service. I'd invite you to talk to me, but again, I don't think you want to do that today. But if you do want to talk to me specifically, uh, please send me an email at Mitch at northwoodcc.org. But if you're already a Christian, remember that this is what is now true of you. You no longer have to keep the righteous requirements of the law to earn God's favor. And you have access to the very presence of God. Why? Because Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law for you. And Jesus was the perfect sacrifice to cover your sin. And now Jesus... It's the one who walks you into the very presence of our Father and says, this is your son. This is your daughter. This is what Jesus has done for us. And this is what's true of you if you've trusted in him. Now, unfortunately, those disputing with Stephen, again, they didn't see it this way. They saw it as blasphemy. And yet, verse 15 says, as they gazed on him, They saw his face was like that of an angel, most likely implying that it was shining even as Moses' face shined as he would meet with God face to face and then come out to represent God to the people. Which is how ironic. The very one they're accusing him of speaking against is the very one whose face he resembles here. And so the allegations have been set. Stephen has been falsely accused of speaking against the temple and the law. And so then, in chapter 7, verse 1, the high priest asks Stephen whether these accusations are true. And Stephen then begins to make his defense in verse 2 through verse 53. Now, Stephen defends himself by retelling the history of Israel in such a way to subtly address his accusations. He doesn't come out and directly address them point by point, but instead weaves them in and out of Israel's history. And so it can actually be easy to miss them. But his basic argument goes something like this. You say that I've spoken against the temple and the law, yet God has always dwelled wherever his people are, not in houses made by human hands. Moses himself prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like him. God has always worked for the good of his people, even when they resisted him. And in fact, that it's you who, like your fathers before you, are resisting him now. And you're the ones demeaning the true temple and the fulfillment of the law. So we'll take each of those arguments and just try to follow them through Stephen's defense to see where we get them. So first, Stephen argues that God dwells wherever his people are. So follow this theme with me. We see this first as God establishes presence with Abraham 
in three different places, in Mesopotamia, then Haran, and then in Canaan. So first in chapter 7, verse 2, God appears to Abraham when he's in Mesopotamia. And then Abraham goes to Haran, and in verse 4, God appears to Abraham there too. And then he leads Abraham into the land of Canaan, and in verses 5 through 8, while Abraham is there, God promises that Abraham's offspring would be sojourners. And it's there in Canaan that God establishes his presence and his covenant with Abraham. So again and again, God is appearing, dwelling with, present with Abraham, no matter where he is. And then we see God is present with the patriarchs, Joseph, Moses, and all the people of God in Egypt. So in verse 9, although Joseph was sold as a slave into Egypt, it says that God was with him there. And then in verses 15 through 16, Jacob and all of Joseph's brothers moved to Egypt, and God is the one leading them there. And then in verse 17, it says it's at this time in Egypt that God begins to fulfill his promise to multiply Abraham's offspring. Again, God is with all the people. And then in verse 20, we see that God is even present with Moses as he's beautiful in God's sight when he's born. And then when Moses flees from Egypt, God is still present with him all the way in the wilderness. In verses 31 through 34, God meets Moses in a burning bush. He's present there. No matter where his people are going, God is dwelling with them. And then finally, Stephen turns to uh, the tent of meeting or the tabernacle and then to the more long-standing temple in verses 44 through 47. His basic point is this. As the people are wandering through uh, the wilderness and as they eventually uh, settle in Jerusalem, God is present with his people in those places. So all of this then culminates In verse 48, when Stephen says this, look with me. Yet, the Most High God does not dwell in houses made by hands. As the prophet says, heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or what is the place of my rest? Did not my hand make all these things? So Stephen's basic point is relatively straightforward. Although the tabernacle and the temple have been designed by God for him to specially meet with his people and have been present for the vast majority of Israel's history. God did not need those things. He doesn't dwell in houses made by people. Everything that we would even use to build them was made by God. Further, as we've seen through this sweep of Israel's history, God has been present (coughs) again and again and again with his people all over the place. From the very beginning. So Stephen's accusers misunderstand him. And have falsely accused him. Of speaking against the temple. And against uh, against the temple. Because the reality is that God's. That God dwells wherever his people are. And now that Christ has come. God dwells among those who are in Jesus Christ. So Stephen's not putting down the temple. So much as showing how Christ is the fulfillment of the temple. Christ is a fulfillment of what they ought to long for from a temple, that God would be present with his people. So second then, we see Stephen addresses the claim that he speaks against the law and Moses by pointing out that Moses himself prophesied that God would raise up a prophet like Moses. 
the longest and most significant part of Stephen's speech, centers on Moses. And the way that Stephen describes Moses clearly shows that he's not speaking against Moses, but holds him in high regard. So in verse 20, again, he says Moses is beautiful in God's sight. In verse 22, Moses was mighty in his words and deeds. In verse 25, Stephen recognizes that God was giving Israel salvation by Moses' hand. In verse 35, he recognizes Moses as both a ruler and redeemer. In verse 36, he recognizes Moses had performed wonders and signs. And in verse 38, he recognized that Moses had received living oracles. And so Stephen clearly here thinks highly of Moses. In fact, he points out in verse 37 that Moses is the one who said this to the Israelites. Look with me at verse 37. God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your brothers. In other words, Moses himself anticipated a day when another prophet would meet with God face to face. When another prophet would give God's law. When another prophet would completely obey God's law in all the ways that Moses had not. Moses himself foresaw a day when a prophet who was both like him and better than him would come again. So Stephen's point is simply this. As I'm speaking of Christ fulfilling the righteous requirements of the law, I'm not speaking against the law or speaking against Moses. I'm simply pointing out, as Moses pointed out, that Jesus is the one we've been anticipating all this time, who came to be the fulfillment of the law. So again, Stephen's false accusers have misunderstood him and falsely accused him of speaking against the law when he is simply along with Moses, the one who first gave the law, pointing to Jesus, the prophet like Moses that God raised up to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law. And then third, we see that God has always worked for the good of his people, even when they resisted him. This is the third theme we see woven throughout Stephen's defense in the history of God's people. God working for the good of his people, despite all sorts of obstacles and circumstances, including some of those things being his own people. We see the first obstacle in Abraham's day in chapter 7, verse 5. It says, Yet God gave him no inheritance in it, not even a foot's length, but promised to give him, give it to him as a possession and to his offspring after him, though he had no child. Here, God is promising, I'm going to give you an inheritance and give you an offspring, though Abraham and Sarah were barren, though they had nothing to inherit or to give to their offspring. And yet God is promising this, and later he fulfills it. But we find the second obstacle in Joseph's day. In chapter 7, verse 9, the patriarchs, Joseph's brothers, were jealous of him. Their own sin led them to sell their brother into slavery in Egypt. But in verse 10, it says, God rescued Joseph out of his affliction and gave him favor and wisdom. God would use the sin of Joseph's brothers to actually save Abraham's children, Jacob and all of his sons and Joseph's brothers, so that he could keep his promise to multiply Abraham's offspring into a great nation and bring them into a new land. Then we find a third obstacle in chapter 7, verse 17. As God's promise to Abraham was being fulfilled to turn his family into a great nation, a Pharaoh who did not know Joseph came into power and enslaved God's people and began to kill their infant children. 
that once again, God raises up Moses to deliver his people who was instructed in all the wisdom of the Egyptians, who was mighty in words and deeds to be this deliverer for his people. And yet this is then where we begin to see the obstacle actually becomes God's people themselves. Verse 25 tells us that Moses thought the people would understand God had given him as a deliverer. But they did not understand. Instead, in verse 27, one Israelite responds to Moses trying to help by saying, Who made you a ruler and a judge over us? And in verse 35, Stephen makes it even more explicit that they had rejected Moses by asking a question like this. And then in verse 39, once Moses has actually delivered God's people out of Egypt into the wilderness, they refuse to obey Moses. They thrust him aside, wanting to go back into slavery. And then in verse 41, they make an idol, offer a sacrifice to it, and rejoice in the work of their hands. And yet again and again, throughout all of this, God is still present with his people, still giving his people the law, and working for their good. Which brings us then to Stephen's final point. You are the ones demeaning the temple and the law. Stephen says, the problem is not me. I'm standing in continuity with Moses and the law. And I see that the temple properly understood points us to Christ because Jesus is God's presence with us. I'm listening to Jesus, the prophet who would come like Moses and who would declare us all these things. And so Stephen says, no, the problem's not me. The problem is you. You, like your fathers, continue to resist God. And therefore, you have misunderstood what God has said. Look with me at verse 51 to see specifically what he says. You stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit. As your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. You who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. So the problem, Stephen says, is that those who are falsely accusing him and trying him always resist the Holy Spirit as their fathers did. And just like their fathers persecuted the prophets who were before them and rejected Moses, so now they have murdered Jesus, the righteous one, who came to fulfill the law. And to be the true temple, establishing God's presence with his people. At the end of it all, though they pay lip service to the law, he says, they do not keep the law. And so Stephen's defense concludes here, arguing that he doesn't hate the law or hate the temple, but knows they point to Jesus. So the problem is not Stephen's understanding or preaching, but rather like their fathers beforehand, the people have resisted God. And rejected God. We don't get to hear how Stephen would draw all those things together. Or what else he would have said. Because then the people actually prove his point. In verses 54 through 60. Stephen is murdered like Jesus. Verse 54 tells us that Stephen's speech enraged them. And while they're enraged in verses 55 through 56. The spirit gives Stephen a vision of Jesus at the right hand of his father. And yet, as his accusers hear him describing Jesus, 
They prove they're hard-hearted. They prove that they are uncircumcised in their ears as they cover their ears so that they won't have to listen. And as they then rush together at him to get him to stop talking, they cast him out of the city and they stone Stephen to death. Now, as they're hurling stones at him, Stephen dies much the same way Jesus did. As Jesus had said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Stephen calls out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. As Jesus had said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Stephen cries out with a loud voice, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. Having experienced the grace, mercy, and tenderness of Jesus in dying for his sin and forgiving him of his sin, Stephen is now prepared to show that same grace, that same mercy, that same forgiveness, even in the faces of his accusers and executioners, the same way Jesus had done for all of us. And when Stephen died, we see his death then leads to widespread persecution. Look with me, chapter 8, verse 1. And Saul approved of his execution. And there arose on that day great persecution against the church in Jerusalem, and they were all scattered through the regions of Judea and Samaria, except the apostles. Devout men buried Stephen and made great lamentation over him. But Saul was ravaging the church and entering the house after house. He dragged off men and women and committed them to prison. So finally here we see persecution causes the church to be scattered. After three to five years of ministry and only doing ministry in Jerusalem, the persecution that results from Stephen's death leads the church to be scattered through Judea and Samaria. Finally, the church is forced to do what Jesus had commanded them to do all along. They are now witnesses, not just in Jerusalem, but also in Judea, Samaria, and eventually will be to the ends of the earth. Now listen carefully. I'm not saying that Jesus or God brought about this persecution to punish the church for not going to the nations. We cannot look at events in human history and know why God is sending them. So, inevitably, I'm sure, if this hurricane turns out to be a huge disaster on a particular city, there will be some Christian who will say, God is punishing that city for doing something. That is bogus. We, we are not able to know the mind of God in that way. And yet, what is true and what we see in this passage is that God would use something like that still for the good of his people and for his glory. And he uses even this great tragedy in order to accomplish something good. The gospel goes out of Jerusalem to Judea and to Samaria. And this is what God desires for his people. He doesn't want the treasures he has given them to just be holed up with them, kind of held in isolation somewhere on their own. No, he wants them to be shared and spread out for the good of all people. This is what we mean when we talk about valuing kingdom partnerships. We aim to partner with others in the gospel by sharing our resources and sending out our members to advance God's kingdom. Like the early church was called to do and eventually forced to do, as the Lord blesses us with resources and prospers us, we want this to be used in service not just of Northwood, but also God's kingdom around the globe. And so, as the persecution then scatters the church, there are some who still remain in Jerusalem, especially the apostles. But also it makes mention 
of some devout men who bury Stephen and make great lamentation over him. And yet at the same time, they're lamenting his unjust death. At the same time, our passage tells us that a man named Saul approved of his execution and was ravaging the church by putting Christians in prison. So persecution causes the church to scatter. Now before we take a moment and try to put all these pieces together, I want to take a moment to draw our attention to two applications just in this final section. First, I want you to notice in response to Stephen's death, these devout brothers make great lamentation over his death. Now, it seems to me that sometimes Christians can minimize grief and lamentation when a brother or sister in Christ dies. And on the one hand, there's a right impulse to celebrate that that Christian is now in the presence of the Lord. On the one hand, there's a right impulse to celebrate because of the hope we have in Christ. And certainly, we're commanded not to grieve as those who without hope grieve. And yet, on the other hand, I think the example of these early Christians shows us that our hope in Christ does not mean we don't have to grieve or lament either. In fact, our hope in Christ may mean that we grieve even more deeply. We lament even more deeply because we know just how wrong death is. We know that this is not the way it's supposed to be. So, dear brothers and sisters, I would have you be free from the pressure to put on a smiling face and to pretend everything is going well when really what you want to do is grieve and lament. Being a Christian doesn't mean we don't hurt when tragic things happen to people we love. But it does mean we take that grief, we take that lament to the God in whom we hope, the God who will meet us in our brokenness. So the second thing that I want you to notice is the actions of the latest person we've been introduced to, the man named Saul. This man who approved of Stephen's execution, who was ravaging the church and dragging Christians off to prison. This man, Saul, will later become most widely known as the Apostle Paul, the great apostle to the Gentiles, who wrote about a third of the New Testament. We'll see his conversion in greater detail in a few weeks. But right now, let me just say that if Jesus can save Saul, this guy who approved of the first martyr's death and was the first one to rally the troops to persecute the church, then no one is ever too far gone. If you're not a Christian and you think because of your past, you are too far gone for Jesus, let me be crystal clear here. You can never be too far gone for Jesus. Well, you may object, I don't know your history. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know your situation. I don't know what you've done. That's all true. But I do know Jesus. And I know there is no sinner who has ever come to Jesus for mercy and grace who has not found it. And so I would plead with you, do not let your past be the reason you don't come to Jesus right now. You are never too far gone. And if you are a Christian and you think of friends or family members who just seem so hard-hearted to the gospel, maybe you've had the conversation hundreds of times and they don't seem interested. Or there's people that you're wanting to get to with them right now, but they won't have it. Please do not give up hope. They are never too far gone. Jesus can get a hold of their heart. Hope in him. Pray for them. 
Trust that God can do a work. Because no one is ever too far gone for Jesus to save them. So now, with all that being said, let's try to draw together all that we've seen in this passage and ask what the big idea of this passage is. I think as we pull all these things together, we see the big idea is this. God has, is, and always will use all things, including resistance to him and his people, for the good of his people and for his glory. God has, is, and always will use all things, including resistance to him and his people, for the good of his people and for his glory. I think we see this theme running both between what happens to Stephen and what Stephen describes in Israel's history. So in Stephen's life and ministry, Stephen preaches Christ. Stephen's falsely accused of blasphemy. And when Stephen points out the resistance of his accusers to the work of the Holy Spirit, they murder Stephen and begin to persecute the church. And yet God uses this great tragedy in Stephen's life and in the church of Jerusalem's life in order to scatter the church to those who have never heard the gospel, to those who desperately need to hear about Jesus. God uses even opposition to him in order to further his mission and purpose in the world. And this is also what's true of Israel's history. Despite the barrenness of Abraham and Sarah, God gives them an offspring. Despite the jealousy of Joseph's brother, God uses that to save them from famine. Despite the ongoing rejection of Moses and his leadership, God delivers them out of Egypt and into the promised land. God was always working to fulfill his promise to Abraham to make his family into a great nation that could not be numbered in all the nations of the earth. And then to then bless all the nations of the earth. This was true of Stephen's life. This was true of Israel's history. But this is also what was true on the saddest day in human history. On the day when God himself was falsely accused, beaten, mocked, and crucified on a cross. On that day when Jesus, who was perfect, blameless, and righteous, suffered God's wrath for our sin, suffered for our rebellion, for our rejection of God, It was on that day that God accomplished the greatest good in human history. What is the good thing that God was doing, is doing, and will always do for his people? Among other things, that includes what Stephen is being falsely accused of. God is establishing his presence with us through Jesus. In Jesus, the fullness of God dwelled bodily. So that when we see Jesus, we see God himself. When Jesus offered himself once for all on the cross, the need for a temple where we offer sacrifices was put to an end because his once for all sacrifice was sufficient. We don't need more. And so now we can enter God's presence boldly because of Jesus. Jesus has made a way for us to be with God both now and for all eternity. Jesus is the temple. And when we trust in him, we are being built into him as a temple together. Northwood, Do you know that together we actually get to be a temple of God's presence? That's what's going on when we gather for worship. The spirit of the living God is making himself present with us as we worship. That is what Jesus secured for us on the cross. And not just that. Jesus fulfilled the righteous requirements of the law. So that we can die to the law as a system of salvation. And instead are free to live for God. Because he loves us and we love him. 
Because Jesus satisfied the righteous requirements of the law, we don't have to anymore. Because we don't have to earn God's love or acceptance, now we can obey God simply because God loves us and we love him. We're not trying to earn his affection. This is the good thing that God has done for us, is doing for us, and will always do for us in Jesus through even the worst of circumstances, including the rejection and murder of his very son. God has, is, and always will use all things, including resistance to him and his people, for the good of his people and for his glory. So what difference does this make for us? Well, first, I think this shows us that we can trust God and be bold in our faith because God can use even the cross of Jesus Christ for our good and for his glory. Stephen was bold in proclaiming Christ even when he was misunderstood, even when he was being falsely accused, and even when it would end in his death, Stephen was bold. Why would he do this? I think it's because he trusted God. The history Stephen tells of Israel's history gives us every reason to believe that Stephen believed God could use anything, including his death, to do good for his people and for God's glory. And I think Stephen trusted God because, as the author of Hebrews describes, we are to look to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame. Jesus had already seen God use this worst event in human history, the cross of Jesus, to accomplish the greatest good the world will ever know. And so as he looks to Jesus and all that Jesus has done, he's willing to trust Jesus be bold for Jesus, and even trust Jesus to suffer with him, trusting that God would use it for good, even as God had already used Jesus' suffering and death for our good. Let's back up one minute. Stephen looks to Jesus. Why would Jesus do all this? As I just read from Hebrews, Jesus did it for the joy set before him, the joy of bringing many children to glory. The reason Jesus endured such suffering was for you. You were the joy set before Christ. He looked out and saw, I will redeem a people for myself. So though I despise the shame of the cross, I'm going to go through it. Because I love you. I'm overjoyed at the possibility that we will be heirs together. And that you will be sons and daughters of the living God. This is why Jesus did it. So I think if we want to be bold in our proclamation of the gospel to those who might ignore us, mock us, reject us, and maybe one day even persecute us, I think we actually need to begin not with boldness, but with trust in Jesus. Do we really trust that God can and will use even what might we might suffer for being bold for our good and for his glory? And if we don't yet trust him in that way, let's pray. Pray that God would increase our trust in him. And pray that God would increase our boldness for him. God will delight to do these things for us. And as we trust him, just as we were the joy set before Christ, now for the joy set before us, let us joyfully risk being ignored, mocked, rejected or maybe even being persecuted knowing that God is in control 
and in hope that God would use our boldness to bring friends, family members, coworkers, and neighbors to saving faith in Jesus. We can trust God and be bold in our faith because God used even the cross of Jesus for our good and his glory. The second, I should say there's many different ways we could apply this. These were just two I saw in the particular uh, text that I wanted to draw our attention to. Well, the second one we see in our passage is that we can be like Jesus as we point people to Jesus. One of the most astounding aspects of the way Jesus died was the forgiveness, grace, and mercy that was on his lips for his accusers. And we've come to a point in our nation's history, and I'm sure there's been other points like this before, where Christians are beginning to say now, and I'm sure have said before, that now is no longer the time for Christians to be winsome and gentle in persuading others. We now live in a world where all people can understand is power. And so what the church needs to do now, more than anything else, is seek power for itself to protect its interests, to protect its rights. Now is the time for the church to make sure that it has the power it needs to be protected Regardless of what tone it might use, regardless of how that might shame the name of Christ, but I don't think this is what Jesus would say. In fact, I know it's not what Jesus would say, because he's the one who said this, my kingdom is not of this world. If my kingdom were of this world, my servants would have been fighting that I might not be delivered over to the Jews. The logic that says, we need to do whatever it takes as Christians to gain power to protect ourselves, is the same logic that Jesus says would have prevented him from going to the cross. Instead, the path set before us as Christians is the one that Jesus and Stephen set before us. This means sometimes we will say hard things. No one wants to be told they're resisting the Holy Spirit. No one wants to be told that they have rebelled against God and need his grace. And yet, In order for people to receive the gospel as good news, they must hear the bad news that they need it. But this also means that even as we talk about someone's need for a savior, we'll be gentle, be kind, we'll be gracious. We'll speak of our mutual need for a savior. It's not just you who needs a savior, but I need Jesus too. As we speak of their need to repent of sin and trust in Jesus, we do so out of our own sense of needing to repent of sin and trust in Jesus. Even if all this means, because we're doing it so gently, that we might actually suffer for Christ. We might actually one day be persecuted. And why can we do this? Even if it's our gentleness that leads to our suffering? Once again, because God has, is, and always will use all things including resistance to him and his people for the good of his people and for his glory. We can believe that even in the way we point to people to Jesus. We are either drawing people to their Savior in the very way we're pointing them to Jesus, our gentle Savior, or we're confusing people because our message might become so different than our tone. So instead, let us be a people who are like Jesus as we point people to Jesus. And one other example of this that I know none of us actually want to do, but just to be clear, the street preachers who yell at people, drawing attention to how 
shameful they are and only hoping that maybe they'll get someone's attention somehow and then they'll tell them about Jesus. That's not the kind of pointing to Jesus that scripture has in mind. The kind of pointing people to Jesus is one that is gentle and loving and patient, even as it does point out sin and the need for repentance. And so we can be like Jesus as we point people to Jesus. Northwood, God has, is, and always will use all things, including resistance to him, for the good of his people and for his glory. So let's trust him to be bold in our faith. and Let's be like Jesus as we point people to Jesus. Because the cross is our example, and the cross is what gives us our confidence that all things can and will lead to our good in God's glory. You know, as we conclude our time together, let's take a moment to reflect on what God has been saying to us through his word. And I hope this won't be the last time you reflect on it, that you might even take some time to talk with other brothers and sisters in Christ about what God has shown to you this morning. Perhaps these questions will be helpful for reflection or maybe even a good launching point for a lunch discussion or dinner conversation later. Let me read them and then we'll take a moment to reflect. How does knowing God has, is, and always will use all things for the good of his people and for his glory give you hope? How does knowing Jesus endure the cross because you are his joy encourage you to be bold in your faith in the face of persecution? And finally, how has Jesus' love and forgiveness affected your attitude towards those who are hard to love and even harder to forgive? Let's take a moment to reflect on God's word. Heavenly Father, I thank you that I did not lose my voice as I was preaching. You are gracious and kind. But Lord, now I ask that you would use your word in all of our hearts to stir us to a deeper confidence in your character, in your power, in your kindness displayed for us through Jesus on the cross. Because of what you've already done, especially at the cross, but again and again in each of our lives, we ask that you would help us to trust you, to believe that you're good, to believe even when we can't see it, that you are using all things for our good and for your glory. Lord, as we trust you, we ask that you would help us to be bold in pointing others to Jesus so that people would come to see how great a Savior he is. In the precious name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.